and welcome to Stuck for Ideas, a podcast by Alice Wordsworth and Erin Blackmore. The impetus for this podcast came out of quarantine. With the theatre industry in crisis, our self-sufficiency, creativity and imaginative drive were put to the test. And we have found ourselves looking more than ever to others for inspiration. This podcast is about where we and guests go when we're stuck for ideas. Inspired by how many of our guests were recharging and relishing in nature, we have an exciting new partnership with Potgang to share with you. Hey, I'm Sam from Potgang. So at the beginning of this year, I noticed that people were getting more and more into growing their own veg and herbs from home, but didn't really know what they were doing. So in terms of what to grow, how to grow it, where to get all the bits from, particularly if you don't have a car. So I set up Potgang to make this all much easier. So we offer a, a monthly grow your own subscription. So on the first weekend of each month, we drop off three types of seasonal veg or herb seed, the pots and compost for planting them, plus lots of guidance and support on how to grow them successfully. So when it arrives on people's doorstep, they've got everything they need to get growing straight away. And Al and I got our first pot gang delivery in December, which included Greek cress, Sutton dwarf beans, broad beans and mung bean seeds. And now, Sam, I've got an embarrassing confession to make. Uh, The compost has Erin written on it. And I kid you not, both my flatmate and I scratched at it to see if it was a sticker, both thinking, wow, that's serious commitment, personalising even the soil. Until I saw a social media post and realised that that's just the name of the compost company. (laughs) But I have honestly loved making the mung beans in particular. They're so rewarding and we even enjoyed eating them in our lunchtime green salads over Christmas. They're super easy and so tasty. And my dad, who's a child of the 60s, got a real throwback seeing me grow them because apparently he used to grow all sorts of beans in a three-tiered draining contraption. One of my favourite things about Potgang is that all the seeds are given a name and come with this gorgeously illustrated information card telling you how to look after them. Although I think I'm less Letting Xenia the crest down. She isn't looking so well and I'm going to blame my flatmate for flattening her when watering. But I've also not had much growth yet with broad bean Trevor. Should I be taking his fleece off yet, Sam? No, I'd definitely keep his fleece on for the moment, particularly when it's so chilly. It it basically brings up the temperature of the compost by a few degrees, which um, helps him get growing, basically. Um, So even though he might not have popped up um, through the surface of the compost yet, he's probably setting his roots beneath it and and getting started so so yeah the fleece should definitely help that and as we head into yet another lockdown it's a great time to get potting let's be real we have no excuse now not to water them as we really have nowhere else to be yeah no it it really does bring a bit of life to your space and you you really feel like your seeds are your your little babies really when you see them popping up um and also everything does taste way better when you've grown it yourself We will report back on our growing soon. There's a link to Potgang in our show notes. Do they ever ask men? I mean, if you look at like the history of cinema, right? And everything has been, and TV definitely, 
where it's almost always the case that it's a guy, a bunch of other guys writing it, a guy producing it and an entirely male crew. And I just always wonder if they say to him, like, was there something about this project that really felt like it had white male flavor that you felt like you really wanted to populate, like the entire production and writer's room with like white guys, you know, <laughs> middle-aged white guys? We are so excited to welcome Anna Winger, a multi-talented Wonder Woman and most recognized this year as co-writer and producer of the Netflix series that captivated us all, Unorthodox, which was a mesmerizing insight into the Hasidic Jewish community in Williamsburg, New York. Before this, Anna created yet another hit TV sensation, Deutschland 83, 86 and 89, which was set in a divided Germany at the peak of the Cold War. She's also author of 2008 novel, This Must Be the Place. And I think it's also worth mentioning that we are very relieved and thrilled to be talking to you after the announcement of Biden's triumph over Trump. Phew, oh, to yeah. say the least. Anna, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine, and I'm definitely better than I was two weeks ago when we were waiting for the election results. Yeah, you can say that again. Mm -hmm. And now for the return of our quick-fire question round. Here we go. Wide shot or close-up? Wide. Dancing or singing? Dancing. Home or away? Away. Reality or fiction? Fiction. Spontaneity or planning? Spontaneity. Great. Now, Anna, I recently read that you were raised in Kenya, Massachusetts and Mexico. That mm. sounds like an amazingly vibrant childhood. How much of your life did you spend in those places? Well, my parents are anthropologists. So they met in West Africa, but then they moved to East Africa and I lived there as a kid. And then um, they're professors at Harvard. So they, we also, uh, starting when I was about, I guess, six or seven, maybe eight, seven, uh, we also lived in Boston. And so we would go back and forth between the places where they were doing their research and, um, and then our house in Boston. I was born in Chicago, but that's just a kind of random I never lived there. So we lived in Kenya when I was little. And then when I was about 12, we moved to Mexico. And then I lived in Mexico on and off between, say, uh, 12 and maybe 28. And then I've lived here in Germany now since, well, for 18 years. So since I was 32. So actually, I've lived outside the United States much more than I ever lived in it. And you also have Jewish, Jewish heritage, am I right? And how much did that kind of play a part of your upbringing? Um, well, my parents, neither of my parents is religious, um, but I did in my American life grow up in a very Jewish world culturally. Um, so, and my, obviously my grandparents, um, but I would say that my parents, both of my parents were, were people who had sort of sought out a life of the mind and kind of left religious life behind them. Um, but I suppose it was, you know, one of the things that was interesting for me when we were researching unorthodox was to realize that while this, the spectrum of Jewish experience is very broad, you know, and, and certainly my childhood is at one end and um, Deborah Feldman's childhood is at the other end. Deborah Feldman is the author of the book that inspired unorthodox. Um, there are many cultural things about Jewishness that are um, consistent even in the secular world. So I realized, I mean, on the surface of it, 
Hasidic culture is extremely foreign even to me, but once I got deep in it, it felt more familiar than I had expected. And you were, before you came to writing and TV and everything, you were a professional photographer for almost a decade. What kind of photography were you doing? I was a documentary photographer and I, and I actually did it for more than a decade. I, I still feel like a photographer. I think of myself as a photographer who writes. You know, my whole education was as a photographer. I, I definitely approach my work as an artist or as a visual artist. And I started writing... Um, I guess there was some overlap. I was still working as a photographer when I wrote This Must Be the Place. And, but when I found screenwriting, in a way, it kind of brought together everything that had always interested me because to some degree, it's like writing a novel because it's telling a story in chapters. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, you're leading with the visual, right? So it's, it is also like documentary photography. So I think that... Um, that's why I took to it so quickly because, you know, I've only been doing this for a little while and it's been a really intense period creatively for me because I, I once I found uh, the process of making TV shows, it really just worked for me. It brought together kind of everything I'd ever been doing before. And your role in TV has is a creative producer. Is that right? Is that the title you go by on projects or well, no, I'm, I'm the, I'm the or... writer. I mean, okay. I, I would say, you know, I'm, a, I'm definitely the head writer of all my projects. I, and I guess as a, I'm a, also the producer of my work. I think the one thing that might be different in England than it is in the United States, and mind you, I'm working in Germany, but I think I work in a more American way, um, is that a lot of writers in, of TV in England are not producers, but uh, the writer-producer is, is the way... Um, you know, sort of the golden age of American television is organized around the writer, producer, showrunner is another word for it, creator, of course. Um, and I, I sort of have always, have always makes it sound like a really long time, but from the beginning of doing this, I've worked in that model. You know, I've, I've been very active as a producer in my own work, which is to say that while I'm writing it, I'm also deeply involved in all the other decisions of who to hire, of how it's going to look, of, you know, you find yourself having conversations about everything from the makeup to the music. And I guess I would say that the showrunner or creator, you know, in my position, <clears throat> kind of makes the final decisions about all the creative things involved, but is also responsible in many ways for the budget. So because you know, when you, when you make a television show, many of the production solutions are found first or created on the page. And so when you're looking to work with the budget, it's not just a question. It either You can't really separate, let's say, the script from the budget. The, those two things work together. So um, I'm kind of involved in all aspects of producing the work that I write, but I still come to it as the head writer. And... Um, Unorthodox was the first project that I produced with my own company. Um, Deutschland is produced uh, by UFA, which is a subsidiary of Bertelsmann, uh, like Random House, um, Penguin. But um, Random Penguin, Penguin Random. <laughs> um, that's all one company, right? Uh, whereas I have an independent production company. My company is called Studio Airlift. And it was important to me to set this company up as being one that was writer-driven, artist-driven, so whether I'm working with my own work or developing 
projects with other writers, it's very important to me that the writer be at the forefront of the project. Sounds brilliant. It feels different to how, I think that's where I got confused in the UK model, because I've not heard a writer talk about producing their work like that. So that was so really interesting. And you have two daughters, is that right, Anna? How do you find combining a creative life and a family one? How do you manage that balance? Well, you know, I think I had the privilege of raising my children in Germany where, I, you know, there were years when they were very small that I just didn't work at all. So, and it didn't feel um, difficult to do so. You know, many things, you know, I'm living in a social democracy, so things are organized differently than they are in New York, where I, where I was coming from. So, you know, things like nursery school are free and, um you know, if you've been working, then you're paid to take a year off when you have a child. So there's there's a lot of ways in which uh, working women are really well supported here. And so it doesn't feel like a sacrifice to have a child. It doesn't feel like a balancing act in quite the same way that it does for many of my American friends. I'm, I'm not sure what it's like in England. Um, so, I, you know, I really took the time when they were little and spent a lot of time just being with them. And but one thing that changed is being a photographer and the kind of work that I did, which involved a lot of travel, I, I found really quite difficult once I had my elder daughter, who's now 16. And I think that's what really prompted me to write a novel. You know, I was thinking, I don't want to have to travel as much as I, as I was doing. I don't want to be away from her. I took her with me for the first year, but then obviously it became pretty difficult to have a toddler uh, on set or wherever I was shooting. So I think that I had always thought about writing, but I didn't take the time to do it because I was busy being a photographer. And after I had children, I started writing. And, um, and you know, now that they, I, I made Deutschland when Rosie, my youngest, was um, five. So in those years when they were little, I, I was writing, but I was very rarely apart from them. And when I started making TV, they were sort of old enough to, get involved in it. I mean, it's funny, like by the time we made Unorthodox, you know, they were on the set all the time. They got to know the actors really well. They certainly don't hold back on script notes. And um, so it, it feels, and, I, and it, it also should be said that my husband uh, and I make Deutschland together. So that's, you know, it's very much a family operation. Oh, they must adore that being on set. How wonderful. Well, that's a nice segue, I think, to start talking about Deutschland, which follows the very charismatic Moritz, an East German spy's experience in the Cold War West Germany. And you also describe the show as being an adventure story and a coming of age story, which I really loved the way you categorized that. And mm. I mean, the show aired in 2015. How do you feel looking back on it now? Well, the thing about that project is it really grew out of my curiosity about the city that I live in. It's my adopted home. And it was actually such a privilege to work with recent history. You know, it was, everybody's still alive, you know? So all the questions that I had, I could find answers to them and I could talk with people and not just experts and diplomats and people who'd been in the government or in the Stasi, but also just normal people. Like everybody had an opinion about about what that period of time was like. And people had memories about what it looked like and felt like. So it was it was an amazing exploration of my immediate environment. And I think because I'm not East German or West German, I was equally interested in, in both sides of it. Um, 
And, you know, one of the beauties of, I guess, fiction in general, but especially uh, with a screenplay, is that you can kind of explore all sides of something through dialogue. So there's, um, you know, there was a chance to look at both sides of the Cold War equation from a very close up vantage point with um, with Deutschland, because it's, you know, this was the center of the, the whole thing kind of came to a head around Berlin. So <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun to do that. But yeah, I mean, it was why it's certainly crazy. But I think now that I now have, since that I've just full time done this, you know, whereas prior to that, and I mean, I just didn't, I, I, you know, life is not necessarily organized by, by sort of, I didn't design this path for myself. It just sort of happened. And I was inspired to write Deutschland in the first place because of Borgen, which is a Danish TV show, which is really great. And when I saw it, I was at the time uh, writing a second novel and I thought, well, this is a TV show that's a little bit like a novel, you know, and, but it's somehow, I, it's hard for me to even articulate why I made, I made this leap, but I thought, well, you know, if they can make a show like that in Denmark, why couldn't we make a show like that in Germany? So, and my husband is a TV producer. So he was like, okay, well, you write the pilot and if it's good, I'll produce it. It was sort of like that. And you, and was it based off his experiences of working in the kind of West German military as well? I read that somewhere that it was kind of based off Jörg's. Well, it was a particular, experience. it was a very specific thing, which is, I mean, not, the whole story is made up, but um, there was a very small thing, or but there was a seed of the whole project, which is that uh, he was working in the West German military and his job was to listen to East German, well, Russian troops that were stationed in East Germany. And so he ha he worked at a listening station and he was supposed to press record if he heard anything um, suspicious. And um, it, by the way, it bears mentioning that the wall came down while he had this job and he never heard anything suspicious. So he actually learned wow. the wall was coming down from the nightly news. <laughs> so it was kind of a, you know, act of futility. I mean, there was something very comic about the whole job. I mean, he always had told me that story. But the interesting thing was that sometimes the guys on the other end who he was listening to would wish him personally, uh, you know, had to have a nice weekend or they, they would speak to him. So, or like have a happy Christmas or whatever. So he knew that they knew he was listening, but so, which meant that there must be a mole on his base, but he didn't know who the mole was yeah. and he never figured it out. He, but he assumed it was one of his, colleagues like someone in his troop or one of the commanders it could have been anybody but he didn't ever figure out who it was that had told the russians on the other side who was the names of the people who were listening but they knew it and i always thought that that was really funny you know and so the idea with deutschland was to write the show from the point of a tv story from the point of view of the mole and that was the inception of wow. the idea. What is your working relationship like with your husband? Because I feel like a lot of people would be relatively horrified at the idea of working yeah. with their So spouse. we don't always work together. We work together on that job, on that particular project. But, um, but nothing else we do overlaps. Because he actually works for Bertelsmann. I mean, he has, he has a company that's also that's located as part of a larger conglomerate. And... I just work by myself <laughs> in a smaller constellation of me and uh, the various people that I, uh, you know, 
seduce into working with me, but it's not, it's, it's just different. Um, but in terms of our collaboration, I mean, he's always my first reader, you know, he's, in a way he does the same thing as me. I mean, I would say he came to writing as a producer and I came to producing as a writer. So our trajectories were different, but in the end, we were both writing and producing TV and movies. And so it's, uh, it's um, we are very close critics of each other's work and close readers of each other's work, but we don't work together that often. And I will say that it hasn't been always been easy to work together, not because we don't have a common vision for the work, but because on a set, there has been a tendency to always, I mean, you know, I in some ways really prefer not to simply because I've often had the experience of, let's say somebody asking a question, answering it, and then the person looks to him for con confirmation, you know? I mean, Germany is a pretty sexist place. It's not overtly sexist but let's say it's old-fashioned and most of the people who are doing what I do or even in general working in tv are men so it was already exceptional to be a woman in charge of of a tv show but it was also working with my husband I think made that doubly um complex sometimes which is not his fault it's just that people would often look to him for the final confirmation in a way that bugged me um and that's not his oh, yeah. fault, you know? I mean, he would always say, well, she already answered the question, you know? But there was a, there, I, I found that really annoying and I don't experience that as much when, it's, when I'm by myself or when I'm working in a, in a different constellation, so, you know. Could you tell us a bit about your writing process for Deutschland? Yeah, I mean, actually with all the shows, it's kind of similar in that there, I guess I have a tendency to have, I mean, there's often like a bunch of ideas and things that interest me that end up sort of coming and crystallizing together in in one project. You know, they have like different, there's different sources of inspiration initially. Um, sometimes it's a book, sometimes but it's also conversations that I'm having, whether it's with Jörg or with other people about something thematically over time. And then there's sort of a research phase because they tend to be things that, that I need to know more about in order to write it. I have to know whether it's about Hasidic culture or a project, for example, that I'm writing now that's, that's set in the struggle against apartheid in Paris. It's, there's like, suddenly you have to learn everything about something, you know, you, you sort of get the log line or the sort of headline of what it is that's going on. And then you need to know much more deeply all the details. But then there is a moment where you know enough details that you give yourself the freedom to write, you know, and to kind of shed the burden of it being a, a documentary, let's say, because in the end, you know, I'm writing fiction, I'm making things up. And um, the more I know, the more free I feel to make things up um, and to sort of set fictional characters free against the backdrop of a real story. So, um, and I, you know, I'm really interested in collaboration. I work really intensely with other people both with other writers and also, of course, the directors and, and then the actors, you know, there's, it's a process, you know, first, um, you know, once I start to write, right, and I have all this, I have all the research, then first I write, let's say the pilot and an overview of what generally what happens in the season, but then working in a writer's room, which is when you bring a group of writers together to kind of brainstorm around a project, 
you know, going off that pilot episode and, um, and the rest of the material, we start brainstorming and building out what happens in each episode. And then everybody goes away and writes. And then we come back and sort of critique each other's work. And, and those changes kind of roll through the show. And then um, at a certain point in the process, let's say the third draft, I usually take over all the scripts because it's, it's just at a certain, somebody has to be over all the scripts to, um, to, to put them in, uh, you know, in the same voice, like to feel that everything kind of comes together. So as the head writer, I always do the lot, what we would call you know, first the rewrites and then the last pass on the scripts. And then at that point I would work with the director. Like I would go through them with the director also to get director's notes. Uh, the directors uh, often have comments. Um, I have not worked with a director that was a, a writer who was writing with me. So I'm actually now writing a project with a director, but I had never done that before. So we get director's notes. And then the closer you get to production, of course, you're adjusting things for what's possible. Sometimes you have to take scenes out or reconfigure them to what is possible to shoot. And, um, and then by the time you're really in production, in my case, I've always written the whole show. And then we do what's called cross-boarding the whole season, which is to say we shoot by location. So we take the whole thing apart and then we shoot, let's say, all the scenes that take place at his mother's house, irregardless of which episode they're in. So we, we go through that location and then we do the next location and kind of like, I guess that's how originally how you would shoot a movie, but we do the whole season that way. And at what point does something like the soundtrack come in? Is that a post-production thing? Because I'm not alone in thinking mm. that the soundtrack for Deutschland was just one of the most brilliant parts. And in fact, my flatmate was even really? having the theme tune the other day. Um, and so does that come in post-production or is that something you kind of also build into your storyline as a writer? Uh, well, both. It's funny, I have to tell you that there's a word for that in German, which is earworm. For a song that gets stuck in your head is an earworm. And I think that the um, theme song to Deutschland is truly an earworm. Uh, you know, four, three, two, one. I think everybody gets it stuck in their head. But yeah, in terms of the music, I, I think, okay, with, with every season, I always made a mix of songs from that season before we started writing of the songs that I liked. But because you have to negotiate the rights to the music, in some cases, there is a whole process in post-production where you see what's available and what you can afford and, and that sort of thing. So um, <clears throat> sometimes the songs are in the scripts. And... Um, but often the ones that are in the scripts don't make it into the show. You know, it just depends. But like Hungry Like the Wolf is in um, season one. By the way, the new season of The Crown has her, she puts on a Walkman and uh, rollerblades around Buckingham Palace listening to girls on film. And I was like, you know, well, you know, Walkman and Little Duran Duran, I felt like it was something of an homage. I was like, <laughs> I, I, you know, Peter Morgan, must have watched Deutschland.
yeah, so the music is a big part of it for me. I, I, I really, I write to music a lot and I, with all my projects, there's sort of, I make mixes um, to inspire the writing process. Um, but it's not always the case that the music that you're writing to really makes it into the show because that's kind of a different, you know, you've sort of gotten somewhere else by the end. Like with, with Unorthodox, we ended up using a lot of religious music. We used, um, we mixed together uh, her voice with other music. You know, we kind of played a lot with the, um, with what was really being the music that was being made in in situ basically so that was also i mean that it's also a really musically driven show but in a different way do you have a particular song that you return to when you're writing it's always different depends on what i'm writing i mean like in orthodox one example is like we had this club scene and we really it was really important to us that we have club music you know every show that takes place in Berlin always ends up having a techno scene and they're always kind of the same. It's like this kind of throbbing techno and like <laughs> some sort of strobe lights and then a group of people kind of crushed together. And we wanted to, sh to actually showcase a really good DJ who was like a sort of up and coming person at Berghain. And um, we liked the idea of it being a, a woman a performer. And we ended up working with this woman named Catnap who's from Argentina, but she's really like very popular uh, up and coming young woman at, at Berghain. And her music is just so great. And people, it was so interesting to see how people Googled it and how many hits she got on all of her SoundCloud and all that after. Um, so people definitely follow the music that they see. And that's, for her, it was also really exciting. Anna, can we sure. jump to talking more about Unorthodox? Because it was my absolute lockdown Thank highlight, you. like so many other people's. And congratulations on the eight Emmy nominations and winner of Outstanding Directing. I mean, honestly, what a triumph. What made you want to... For a while, I was looking for a project that um, really spoke to the German-Jewish experience, um, because obviously this is the, you know, this place is the origin of so much Jewish trauma, and yet there's so many... Uh, Jews who've come back to Berlin, um, especially young people nowadays. There's so many Israelis and Americans, and I just thought it was a fertile ground for thinking about the doubling back on history and the way um, sort of the past, the Jewish past and present, and how they speak to one another here. And then I read you, okay, so back up. I, I read the book and I loved it but I did not think about making it into a TV show because the book is very much in her head. It's this beautiful memoir. It's like a tree grows in Brooklyn, the Jewish version. It's so beautiful. And it's about how she discovered books and how she discovered storytelling. And, um, and then one part of it is about this arranged marriage. Um, but, you know, books are not, not all books, uh, many, but many books that you love are not natural fits for adaptation to screen. Because really, in order to make a good adaptation, I mean, there's a few exceptions. I would say normal people is one. But generally speaking, you have to break the book apart and kind of reconfigure it differently because it's not set up for being um, filmed. And so I didn't see, I didn't think of Unorthodox as a natural fit for a TV show. And then, but I know Deborah because our kids go to school together and we're friends. And she said, you know, why don't you turn my, my book into a TV show? I, I still remember when she suggested it. 
And I said to my husband, like, do you think that's a good idea? And he was like, I think it's a good idea, you know, because because we both love the book and we love Deborah. Um, but it was a while before I could sort of see it. And then, you know, I had been talking with Alexa Karolinski, who, who created the show with me. She's a documentary filmmaker who um, who has made two or she's a filmmaker and two of her documentaries uh, are really speak very directly to German Jewish experience. And I particularly loved one of them, which is called Oma and Bella. And it's about her grandmother and her grandmother's best friend who were together in the camps and then ended up staying in Berlin uh, after the war and raising their families here and living here. And when they were very old and their husbands had died, they lived together and cooked the food from their childhood. And um, she made, Alexa made this documentary where she sort of follows them through their day. And they're the whole time they're cooking and gathering, cook all this Jewish food from Poland before the war. And it shows Berlin in this very special way. And there's something, there's this lightness in the movie, even though what they're talking about is very dark, that I just, it's a beautiful film. I can send you guys links. And it's, um, I just love that movie. And so I, I really like the idea of working on something with her. And I had this other project. So we had met about that. And then somehow, and I don't even know how to figure this out, but at some point, Unorthodox just became the project. And then we started to think about how to break it apart and put it back together. And, and Deborah gave us her blessing to really kind of make things up and, and do it our own way. And that, that was important to me because I, I need... I think I'm really driven by the imaginative process and it would have been difficult to stick to everything. Also, we, you know, she's a, the thing about Deborah is she's a young woman who has a very public life as a writer and intellectual. And we didn't want it to be so close to her life that it would, people would assume it was her life. Right. So there was also a healthy distance required to kind of turn it into something on TV. So once we had her blessing, we started breaking it up and like figuring out how to do it. And in the end, the, um, the story of the arranged marriage is kind of the backbone of the show. And that's the story, the part that's told in past tense, like the kind of series of flashbacks that run all four hours that you keep going back to like understanding how they met and how it finally came apart. But everything from the moment when she leaves Williamsburg, we made up. So the whole present day story of the of the show we made up and um, and we wove those two things together so that they dovetail in episode four, like um, just as you find out how the marriage ended, the two characters come together again in the present. Um, and so that that was sort of the structure that we hit on. And um, and I, I think it's been really interesting with Deborah. I think she feels and I hope I'm glad that she feels like this, that the, the show is very true to the spirit of the book but it is in and of itself very different. Because am I right in thinking that Shira Haas, who played SD, she didn't meet um, Deborah until kind of filming yeah. had started. So that kind of, again, it was another level. So she wasn't trying to kind of emulate who she was as a person. Yeah, it, was it was also very important that, that she make SD her own. You know, first of all, we changed, the first thing we did was change all the characters' names. Because it was once you liberate yourself from them being like Deborah and I uh, see I've already forgotten what her husband was called in the book, but definitely not Yankee. So something I loved so much about 
Esty was the way she both showed a joy and a sadness about being in this particular way of life. I feel like you found that pull of presenting being held by this community and, and the happiness that can bring, mm-hmm. like I think of of the wedding scene. But then ultimately knowing deep down that that, that life was constricting her. Was that a specific I think it was a choice, choice uh, for us across the board, also a directing found. choice, the actors. It was really important to us that the show not be either an anthropology of the Satmar community, nor a, um, you know, uh, an indictment of their way of life. You know, it was important to us that it be the story of one young woman's journey. And, it, you know, I think it's very much the case, even in Deborah's life, that she tried everything she could to, to fit in and sort of and to make it work and only left when it was impossible. And I think that we tried definitely that was a conscious decision to to show that, you know, that she's there are, you know, very, very few people leave. There's a lot of reasons to stay. And in the case of Esty, she tries really hard. And by the time she meets Yankee again at the very end, you know, once she's left, you know, she's sort of left the Garden of Eden. There's no going back. Right. So by the time he says, you know, come back and he just I think he he what's interesting and we, you know, the husband character is not really a character in the book. So we really activated Yankee as a character for us. It was really interesting that he's not the kind of person who would ever set off on a journey of self-discovery. But because of what she does, he's also pulled out of his comfort zone and and in fact does go on his own journey of self-discovery that's prompted by her, you know, and in the end they don't come back together, but they are both different people as a result, you know, and then Moisha, we made him up and he is, you know, this character who's both half in and half out, you know, he's, he struggles, but he, he doesn't, he can't quite leave, but he can't quite toe the line either that were at different stages in their relationship to being in or out, you know, as opposed to just showing somebody, it's not just an escape movie, you know, it's more than that, or, you know, it's not just, there's not just one trajectory, there's many shades of grey. That's so interesting, because I remember um, Deborah Feldman saying something about the kind of ideological structures of that community are founded on trauma, and it, that's so interesting then that you show, made a real effort to kind of show incremental stages of that journey because I think what I don't know what do you think is there an overarching message of what it means to be Jewish today in the well, I mean, in that first community of all, do you think <laughs> there's I, I don't know if you could make an overarching message of what it means to be Jewish because this is a very specific community but I do think that as this community has was founded primarily by Holocaust survivors there is a level of uh, inherited trauma that's sort of passed down um, in the community because it's so insular. And the fact that Deborah, or, sorry, that Esty flees to the source of her community's trauma in order to free herself is significant. You know, that's why we wanted, it was important that we acknowledge that this is Berlin. You know, it's not just anywhere. She's not fleeing to, you know, Salamanca or something. It's, it's Berlin, right? So that it matters that it's here and, that there's something about returning to this part of the world that is liberating for her. And um, I mean, I, I definitely couldn't speak in general to Jewish experience, but I do think there's something about 
Berlin that pulls a lot of people back. And what, we made a decision creatively at the beginning of the show that we would only cast Jewish actors in the Jewish roles. And we, it was important to us in part as a kind of political position because so many uh, German films and TV shows have to do with Jewish history because of the shared history. But usually those projects have no Jews on either side of the camera. So we wanted to to do something where we, we would have a kind of collective conversation about Jewishness and about a diaspora experience, about the return to Central Europe. And it was kind of amazing because we had, we were casting, we cast actors from um, the UK, Paris, uh, Zurich, Vienna, Romania, and of course, Israel and Berlin. And um, we had all these people, all these Ashkenazi Jews who were coming, who were like sitting around in, you know, Central Europe making a project like this. So there was a very healthy conversation about Jewishness and about the kind of spectrum of experience and what we share and what we don't share. But there was, um, we also had quite a few people involved in the production who were from the community who had left. And so their experiences were of course most significant. And like the actor who plays Moisha, he uh, is, was raised Satmar and Yiddish is his native language. And so he was very, um, he, he, had a, he was an incredible resource, resource for the other actors and for us as writers. And the same thing was true with Ellie Rosen, who plays the rabbi, who was actually our Yiddish translator and consultant and Yiddish coach. And then he played the rabbi. So we used to joke that he was our rabbi on screen and off. But he, you know, they, there was a lot of discussion, not just about the ritualistic <laughs> details, about the costume, um, things like this, but, but also just about what you take with you when you leave, what you miss, what is gained. You know, it's, it was very poignant, actually, and moving um, and, and specific. You know, there was just a ton of details and a lot of debate around the details. Um, and so that's why it was also really moving that, that, it, that the show was so popular all over the world. You know, it, it's so unbelievably specific, all these details. And then when we just dropped it on Netflix during a, a lockdown, um, it was just wild to see people in India and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Argentina and Mexico, you know, suddenly respond to it. Because, and these are in many cases, places where no one's ever met anyone Jewish, uh, let alone Jewish, but I mean, let alone Satmar, you know, that's, a, that's Satmar is like a micro community within the Hasidic world and the Hasids are like a micro community in the Jewish world. So you're talking about something very, very um, inside baseball, as we would say in English and uh, in America, sorry. And, um, and then, you know, we, there was such a lively discussion <laughs> on social media about it in India, you know, and there were so many people saying, that's my story which was wild so amazing to have built such a community through it um and it sounds like you had quite a predominantly cre mm. female creative team as well was that something that you kind of so that's a, a question people ask me all the time and i think it's kind of funny like do they ever ask men i mean if you look at like the history of cinema right and everything has been and tv definitely where it's almost always the case that it's a guy a bunch of other guys writing it a guy producing it and an entirely male crew. And I just always wonder if they say to him, like, was there something about this project that really felt like it had white male flavor that you felt like you really wanted to populate, like the entire production and writer's room with like white guys, you know, <laughs> middle-aged white guys. Um, 
So I, I think that's a funny question, but I am always asked it. And I guess the answer to that is that I didn't think of it like that. You know, if I am a woman, I'm a, you know, lady boss. And so to me, it seems natural to hire other women. Like the, the hiring of other powerful women is not in and of itself exceptional to me. Um, but I did enjoy it. And I think it was a very, uh, it wasn't just that everyone was female. Uh, by the way, there were a lot of men who worked with us as well. Our, for example, our cinematographer is brilliant. Um, our uh, editor, you know, there were, there were men involved in the, and of course, lots of men in the crew um, and great male actors. But, you know, to work with a female director and a female co-creator, the writer's room, um, it was, uh, you know, it's a, it is a, a, it is driven by a female character, a female protagonist, although the male characters are also important. Um, and so maybe there was something to be said for having a lot of women to, to both weigh in on this story and also to bring Shira through that, through the story, because I think Maria is a great director uh, was a great director for her, but I, but you know, she's also a great director for male actors. So I, I guess I'm a little hesitant to pigeonhole the female part of it simply because, you know, men have been telling women's stories forever and no one ever asks them that, you know what I mean? So it's, but yeah, I like working with other women, like for sure. And, but I wanted to work with both Alexa and Maria because they were really talented, not because they were women. That wasn't the salient. And you've worked with Maria. Yes, um, yes. You worked with her in Deutschland yeah. as well, but as Lenora as, and as an actor. She's a great actress. And, you know, it, it should be said oh. that she really elevates the performance of everybody else in a scene when she's in it uh, as an actress. She's an unbelievable professional and she's just so spot on and precise. And so, and she had made a couple of art house movies like uh, features over the course of the time that I knew her. And I, I really liked the second one, which is called, um, in English, it's called Farewell to Europe. It's about the last phase of Stefan, the writer Stefan Zweig's life. It's, um, I can send you guys a link for it. It's really, um, really beautifully made. And I, I loved the look and feel of that show. And, and in fact, we hired not just Maria, but also the cinematographer and the production designer from, from that movie, sorry, from that movie. Um, Zilka Fisher was our production designer and Wolfgang Thaler was the cinematographer. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, I would say that our relationship as a, uh, you know, my relationship with her as a director was an outgrowth of my relationship with her as, as an actress, but both processes are deeply collaborative. And so it, it didn't feel strange at all to work with her as a, as a director. And you've touched on this a bit already, but in what I'd love to know more about is, because I feel like it's something we come up against with theatre as well, is this concept of kind of mm. authenticity, but then heightened because it's drama. And so, and I feel like this is potentially something you came up against with Deutschland too, but could you talk a bit more about the dichotomy between sort of staying true to what is essentially history whilst also creating television which I think you've described yeah, so, as being well, aspirational. It, this really dates back to my life as a photographer because there was this notion in documentary work that you could you could create an authentic portrayal of let's say I don't know rural Ethiopia you know there was a lot of kind of competition among photographers about who was really creating the most authentic version of of the world right 
But the, the fact is that even as a photographer, you choose where to place the frame. You know, you're not, there is a frame and you're focusing it on that and you're not focusing on what's behind you. And there are choices that are made a lot, like in every part of that process, what to shoot, where to place the frame, you know, which of the pictures uh, in your edit you decide to, to actually, you know, place in a series. So I think that that was like a really lively debate in, in my work before. And I, I very early on chose what was considered like kind of a contentious position that there is no such thing as authentic because it felt to me that to hold that up as the goal, I mean, there, you can be true to a vision of it or your understanding of it, but in the end, it, it's all expressionistic. You're, you're either expressing your own view of what you're, I mean, you're always expressing your own view of it, but there's also, you might try and, and illuminate the experience of something of the person who's in the image, you know, but you couldn't ever make a really valid argument, in my opinion, that it was more authentic. Like I thought that was really treacherous to use that word and people were always using it. It was just this constant thing. And I think with TV, you know, I always in my own work, which I would say is not so different from my photography. I always strive for this sweet spot that for me is between, which is really kind of metaphorical. It's like, how do you tell a story that is both true to whether it's the history or the culture, but also speaks to a kind of is expressionistic of the character's experience. You know, so like in Deutschland, we always make like his view of the West is his view of the West. Like when he goes into the supermarket in the first episode and he sees like crazy, there's like bananas everywhere. You know, it's like this incredible technicolor supermarket, which to anyone living in the West is just a normal supermarket. But we heightened it because you're seeing it through his view of it, you know. And so we really tried to. And that was the same with unorthodox, you know, obviously we're experiencing the Brooklyn of her emotional life and the Berlin of her emotional life. So she's, you're seeing it through her eyes and like Berlin, we deliberately chose kind of nonlinear architecture and bright colors and sort of this kind of ice cream palette of yellows and, and greens and pinks. And then Brooklyn was much more brown and there was, it was, it was darker, it was <clears throat> grittier. It was more inside. So obviously there's many people make, you know, dark movies in Berlin. But for us, our Berlin and let's say Estes Berlin was the sort of Berlin of high summer. And, um, and, and she's like seeing everything light and open and, and possible in a way. And so I, I feel like because I'm writing like character driven stories, to me, it's the authenticity. I, I always try to avoid that word, but I, I would strive for, a kind of emotional authenticity um, and psychological authenticity above any above ever assuming that I could present something that was objectively authentic, you know. And with but that said, I think that it's important to get the details right, and we we go to great lengths to get the details right um, in the Satmar world, but also in the East German world because there's there's all kinds of um, details, and no matter what, I, I already knew from Deutschland that you always get it wrong no matter how hard you try, we always get letters like those Adidas sneakers didn't come out until 1984. And it was crazy that you had them in 1983. And we, we always make all kinds of mistakes, but, and, but I think you try as hard as you can to set the, this space up so that you have that freedom to, you know, to, to speak to character and execution. So that, that's, that's my goal, I guess, as an artist or as a writer, but it's, um, 
I think anyone who tells you like this is the most authentic portrayal of X, you know, is riding a certain line because it's that's they're still making a lot of choices. No, that's a really refreshing way of looking at it. And I think it kind of harks back to what you said earlier about the kind of more facts, you know, the more you can delve into the excitement of the fiction. And do you feel like you have like when you're searching for a new project, do you have a point of inspiration that you kind of find yourself coming back to or a resource that you always use or? I mean, I read a lot of books and I, I, I get a lot of inspiration from books that maybe don't speak directly. I mean, in some cases, it's a question of research around a subject, but it's also just different ways of telling a story. Of course, I also watch um, a lot of TV and film. Um, I love theater. I mean, it's one of the things I miss most about, you know, from this period of time. You know, a theater director recently said something to me that's really stayed with me because I think that I really understand it. And I had never heard it articulated before since I've never studied theater. He said that, you know, theater is all about the edges and about being aware of the edges, you know, because it's a physical space. And so there's, it's, and I was thinking a lot after he said that, that it's not about borders, it's about edges, like edges are a positive. And it reminded me of photography because with photographs, that's about, you know, the frame is like the edges, you know, and, and where you place the frame and how you use the frame. It's always, I think that it, it is about these certain edges, but borders are something that like are barriers to entry. And that I think is something that blocks your imagination. Whereas I think that edges sometimes can be really helpful. Like there can be something about working within a space whether physical or, or, you know, mental, you know, sort of creating this, this kind of space in your mind around a story and figuring out how it all comes together, I think is, a, it's just an interesting way of looking at it. And so, I, you know, once I get interested in something and, you know, for, I think there's a honing in on what the story is, you know, this at, at one point, I'll like research a ton of things and ask a lot of questions, but I get a lot out of first person interviews. Um, I love to, talk to people who experience things and if not if they're not around or if it's too long ago or whatever I, I like to talk to experts you know I'm working on a project that takes place in the future now so it's fun to talk to people who sort of obsess about the future and think about that um, so but I wouldn't say that I have a single um, sort of resource that I was returned to other than you know Google <laughs> And if you are, if you're feeling creatively stuck or in a bit of a rut with writing, is there something you do? Well, I can tell you something really. It's going to sound incredibly dumb in 2020, but I have a Peloton bike. Do you know what that is? It's an exercise. Okay, it's like the best thing ever. Yes, my housemates are desperate for one. It's so <laughs> intense and physical, but like you're you're being sort of egged on by these amazing instructors. So there is something about, you know, sports that is, is so out, you know, just being doing something deeply physical when you're just spent all day writing. Um, you know, we're living in such a weird moment. I, I suppose prior to this, I would have said going out and having dinner with friends and having a big conversation. I think that there's a reason why writers are famous for going out at night. It's, there is this incredible release you get from being with other people or going to hear music or going to the theater at night, or, you know, I'd love to go to museums, but at the moment, since I don't do any of those things, I, I would say the Peloton is, is a, you know, 
is, is all I've got, but it's, it's pretty good. You know, my favorite instructors in London, her name is Hannah. Um, so, you know, and Anna, for people starting out in the creative industries mm. right now, it can feel quite, well, we're definitely in a place where it all feels a bit overwhelming and daunting. I think that creative life is, is an evolution and it has many stages and there, you know, one thing leads you to the next and like now I'm 50 and I look at all the work that I've done until now and it all to me really makes sense how it all connects. But I think that for um, maybe at every stage in that process, it, it wasn't clear to me where I was going with it. You know, it's like to me now it seems really normal. Like I've written a lot of, for example, I, I was a photographer. I wrote a lot of essays for the newspaper, like personal essays. Then I wrote a novel, you know, now I do this. But to me, it all feels like of one of a there's sort of different facets of the same project in a way you know the same sort of artistic journey and I think it's really important to be open in that way and not to not to put so much pressure on yourself that every decision is like and now I'm going to be in this pigeonhole and now I'm going to live in this drawer and now I'm you know it's like you guys come out of theater and you're making a podcast it's like things just keep the all of these things speak to each other and it's all you're you're gathering skills and you're gathering worldviews and it's it's I think important to have confidence in the sort of forward trajectory and that it not have to be sort of a linear path. Oh, what an interview and what a way to start series two of Stuck for Ideas. That was Alice Wordsworth and Erin Blackmore interviewing Anna Winger, the writer of Unorthodox. We really hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we did making it. Thank you so much, Anna. And now for our weekly inspirations inspired by our conversation with Anna. So my inspo of the week was Omer and Bella, the film that Anna had recommended, which was done in 2015. And it's a film by Alexa Karolinski, who's granddaughter of Omar. It's an intimate glimpse into the life of two elderly Jewish women in Berlin. And much of the action takes place in their kitchen, preserving memories of their past through their entirely Jewish cuisine. And Anna was so right about these two women upholding an amazing lightness and joy, despite the kind of dark realities, really, of the things that they've been through. I mean, they speak about the fact that they came to Berlin at age 21, having lost their youth in the concentration camps. You know, they talk about how we wanted to know what it was to party and make up for lost time, because for a long time we couldn't party because our hearts were always crying. But there was a really sweet anecdote about that Bella talks about the nanny who she'd hired to look after her son. And she came in crying one day saying, I was told that Jews had horns and that Jewish men would come and molest women. And I've been here for weeks and nobody has done anything. And Bella replies laughing, no one is going to do anything. And, you know, she said, and I had four men living in the apartment at the time. Um, but one of my <laughs> most favourite elements about it are these kind of amazing, they're sort of freezes or pauses in the dialogue where these women stay seated against a slightly strange, surreal black backdrop on armchairs in their kind of glamorous outfits. 
and the dialogue stops but the film keeps rolling and you there's this amazing reverence where you see them in their faces sort of going back in time and you see the history cross it's like the lines in their faces you can see them seeing it and reliving it all and it and they become a sort of tapestry or dutch still life or something and it's so captivating my only disclaimer is that it's maybe not one for vegetarians there are funny moments where they're shaving hair off a chicken thigh or a pork's trotter literally with a razor um so yeah just a disclaimer for the vegetarians out there there's a lot of raw meat in the visuals <laughs> what's the filming like you say it's just a simple backdrop and just two chairs no so most of the, that they're kind of in between bits but most of the action takes place in their kitchen and it, i uh. get the sense that it's done on a sort of tripod basically just installed in their kitchen because it's done by one of their granddaughters um it's really intimate and in a way the food feels like an excuse for the storytelling that you're just become a part of there you're a fly on the wall essentially and it, you know it gives way for a Q&A and a sense you know a reason to relive it all through the everyday I'm definitely going to give it a watch what did you watch it on I watched it on Vimeo, actually, which feels like a really random platform. So I rented it for £5 or something. Al, what's your inspo of the week? I am continuing on our Shira Has hype train that Anna started us on and Unorthodox introduced me to her as an actress and I'm now obsessed. So there's this new film out called Asia where she stars as a 17-year-old girl and it premiered at this year's Tribeca Film Festival um, and it won loads of awards for cinematography and Shira has won an award for Best Actor and The Guardian describe it as a bravely unsentimental portrait of parenthood and I just thought it was 10 out of 10 wow and it's a debut from the Israeli director Rusi Prabar and the film is all in Hebrew but please don't let this put you off because well I'm dyslexic and that often throws me but I was immersed in their world seamlessly and I loved the lyricism of the language. And it's an incredibly candid, unsentimental look at the relationship between a mother and daughter. Asia, the mother, works incredibly long hours as a nurse and Bicca, the daughter, is in that teenage rebellious phase. But we soon learn that Bicca has a degenerative disease that begins to rapidly deteriorate as uh, the film progresses and it becomes clear that her life is about to end before her story is properly started. I think... I think what I loved so much about this film is that it's so rigorously unsentimental and creates these real flawed flesh and blood characters and it deals with and doesn't shy away from the ugliness of getting ill but the cinematography and the light and the landscape make your experience of this film one of beauty and Although all those moments of beauty are interjected with incredibly difficult scenes to watch, like, and actually scenes I think are exacerbated because of the time we're living through. Vicar has a severe breathing problem and has to use a ventilator, for example. So I think watching this film now felt even more poignant because of that. And it definitely comes with a tear heavy heart warning. I mean, I sent her in a text afterwards just being like, I'm in floods, but please watch it. 
Um, and I think it's just, yeah, it's one not to be missed. It's only an hour and a half. You can watch it on Curzon for a tenner at home and you have it for like three days. So I think it's definitely worth a watch. Being unsentimental when it then has you in tears. That feels like a bit of a dichotomy. Well, I think, well, A, I always cry at everything, don't I? But also, I think it's because... I think it's because the characters they create are so real and their life feels so real and truthful that they... And it's so unindulgent that it then allows you as the viewer to indulge in it and gets and you put the emotion almost on them yeah unindulgent is a good way of putting it like you feel it well it's so I suppose it's so stripped back and so raw that I that it probably makes it more confronting because you know there's there's no you're not got I imagine that your emotions therefore aren't guided in quite the same way with like the music and the drama of it all and instead it's kind of as you say more human and more raw and so there's nowhere to hide with that Erin are you a rotten tomatoer or an IMDb-er oh I don't know that I really listen to any of them to be honest I think I would probably say IMDb over rotten tomatoes I feel like you're a rotten tomato oh you're a true film bar hey I'm not a rotten tomato (laughs) is that what are the stereotypes of both I've actually got no idea does IMDb mean I'm a Die Hard fan. I feel like that means you're more you're more film buff rather than a person of the people. Oh well, I will take it. you for joining us on this podcast please don't forget to rate review and subscribe so other creatives can find us when they're stuck for ideas